So one thing that I would um, I would sort of suggest that is the need. I would want to resist the claim that we even that there needs to be an analogy. It's perfectly possible. There are lots of things in the sciences or in other theoretical fields that are unique and that we can't find analogies for that are really good. So that's the first thing I'd say is that if even if we can't find any good analogies, that's not a problem because there's lots of things like that. The best one that I have ever seen is the light one, which holds that um, light always has a source a ray of light, and then the apex of light, which is where it is, sort of the the light is hitting something or is being felt, right? Either the light's on and it has all three of those, or it's off and there's none of them. So I think that's that's probably the closest one. I forget whether that's Tertullian or whether that's Augustine, who was the first one that proposed that one. That's probably the, 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 your best bet um, there are some other ones, but there's, there's objections that I want to get into to, to those. But I think that's probably the best. Um, and so when we, say, when we say light, in that case, we don't mean the light bulb. We mean the light that comes from it, right? Because right? obviously the bulb can exist without doing anything. Um, so it's with the light as on, right? There's the source part, there's the ray, and then there's the apex where it is, sort of ends up. That's probably the closest, and if you think about that trinitarianly, I can think of, well, the Father, right, the Son, and the Spirit. There's some way that you can sort of make sense of of that one. Um, Whether that's ultimately compelling to someone who doesn't think the Trinity is plausible, I'm not sure whether it really is or not. I think that's one that probably works if you already kind of think it makes sense somewhat. And so I'd say um, we more want to resist the idea that there need to be analogies and just talk about the notion of, uh, you know, a composite being composed of three interdependent persons, right? I mean, that, that, that's just, if you, if you can get to that, then uh, it should be good. Yes? So the suggestion was, is that, is it possible for God to be morally perfect, even if there was one person, because it was true that when there come to be persons, he would interact with them perfectly, right? So that when there were other persons, essentially, is that a good rephrase, is that it's kind of a a counterfactual claim that if there were other persons, he would interact with them perfectly. Um, Ultimately, that comes, it comes back to the core definition of theism, and so it comes a little bit to kind of the parameters of how we sort of laid things out, is that ultimately, until you've actually done it, it's not a characteristic that you have, right? There are lots of things that are counterfactually true of all of us, right? So there are lots of things, right? If I had a different physical body, I would have been an amazing professional wrestler, right? There are there are possible worlds, right, in which that is true, but that doesn't make it true of me now. And so what I would say is that what ultimately the, the objector ends up having to say is that God acquires perfect, that God is neutral to start with, and that God becomes morally perfect when he has other persons to relate to. And so if you ask, well, what's wrong with that view? That goes back to establishing that God exists, right? So the arguments for God's existence that I would want to use would get us to a being that was morally perfect from the outset, right? And so obviously that's a promissory note that I'm not able to make good on right now. So if you want to do that, we'd have to talk about that further. But this, this does commit you to, um, making the ad argument work, does commit you to an argument in favor of God's existence that gets you not just a powerful being who knows a bunch of stuff, 
but a morally perfect being from the outset. So you have to get that in order to make this work. And if you can't get that, then this isn't going to go through. Yeah, so at that point, we would, what we would, we'd be sort of hair-splitting on the word. And at that point, we would want to talk about just, okay, well, what are the arguments for this being, right? So at, th- at that point, rather than arguing about whether this is theism or whether it's not theism. So, for instance, the, the objector um, could just say, look, um, God's not personal in the way that, that we're personal, right? It, it, God just isn't, right? Or God is morally neutral to start with. Uh, so if you just bite the bullet and say that, and I think actually that is ultimately what the sort of the, the um, Jewish and Islamic scholars, for instance, in the Middle Ages who argued with the, the Christians over this, they ultimately did basically say that. Um, and so you have to back off of that. And so at that point, what it turns on is what is actually our argument that God is personal in the first place. And so really what the, what the argument does is it pushes back on it basically says, to hold that God is personal, you're Trinitarian, you're, that's option one. Option two is God's not personal. Or is personal in a very, very different way than our normal sense of personal. Or that God is, God's moral status is very different than our moral status. And you can hold that view, but at least you've, if you're a Christian, you've raised, the, so to speak, the intellectual cost of that other position. Right? So you've, then you'd have to talk about, okay, what's our argument for that view versus, versus the other one? Essentially, kind of any of these types of arguments, what you're doing is you're trying to kind of raise the intellectual cost of your opponent's sort of view. It's like, what do they have to hold in order to uh, be consistent? And if they're prepared to pay that cost, then you have to switch and talk about, you know, well, why, they, why they shouldn't do that. Okay. So question is, is, say, is that apart from the Son and the Holy Spirit's role in sort of... Um, flowing out of God's nature by being uh, morally perfect or by being a person, what role would they have prior to, say, Jesus coming to earth or the Spirit's act, particular actions in the Old Testament? Well, I hate to do this, but on the, on the Son one, we're going to punt that one to next week. But ultimately, the, the quick answer is that on the Christian view, the Son and the Spirit and the Father are active throughout creation. So the Christian would hold that Jesus was intimately involved in creation, as was the Spirit. And actually, if there's a very interesting Bible study sometime on the Hebrew Bible, um, there are what are called theophanies in the Old Testament, where if you do a study of the, quote, angel of the Lord, there are various passages in the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord is actually said to be God. Trinitarians typically hold that that was Jesus, that was pre-incarnate Jesus temporarily taking on the form of a sort of personal, you know, sort of human in order to interact with someone. So famous, you know, Abraham visited by, uh, you know, someone announcing your wife's going to become pregnant even though she's, you know, 90 or whatever she was at the time. Uh, the claim was that that was, that was actually the son. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But if you are a Trinitarian, you definitely don't hold that they just kind of sat around and did nothing. You definitely would have a, we'd point to, you would go back to the Hebrew Bible and it would look very differently. Uh, obviously, if, you, if you're not a Trinitarian, you wouldn't necessarily see it that way. So this is one of these things that kind of, after you've sort of read the later part, and you, or if you think some of these arguments are persuasive, you'd look back and see, wait a minute, you know, uh, when it says, let us make man in our image, you might read that as actually us as opposed to just uh, the royal us of, you know, royal we of a, of a leader or of a uh, king.
Yeah. Yeah. So if, if we were to do the, does Christianity actually hold or does say the New Testament actually support the Trinity? What we would do is part of what we would do is we would look at places where that's exactly what happens, where um, things are claimed of the son or of the spirit that are sort of divine things, right? Omnipotent, omniscient creator things, things that don't apply to just a prophet or a really powerful person or an angel. Um, and so those are the things that very much drive, drive the Trinity. And it's a really, I challenge you to do a really interesting study. We'll talk about this a little next week of the angel of the Lord in the Hebrew Bible. And if you end up as a Trinitarian, you'd see that that's supposed to be the son, not just kind of generic uh, God sort of appearing to people. So the question is, is how do we understand um, things that seem to kind of have a flow to them, but aren't supposed to have a temporal flow, right? So the notion of beget or proceed tends to suggest there was a time where the thing did, hadn't happened, and then there's a time where it did happen. That sort of suggests that, because anything, anytime you have language of flow, there seems to be a suggestion of a time passing. So sort of the deep language is that it's supposed to be that there is such a thing as simultaneous causation, right? So ultimately what the Trinitarian would have to hold or would hold is that the sort of causing of the Son and, this fa- and the Father and Son causing of the Holy Spirit, that these were simultaneous acts, that they happened, so to speak, logically at the, they happened at the same time. And so the only priority is what philosophers call there's logical priority, but not temporal priority. Now this gets into deep stuff, but you asked, so... Um, you know, if you depend, either if you hold that God is in time or if you got hold that God is outside of time, either way, that's the way that it w- would work. And, and philosophers in general um, don't typically have a problem with simultaneous causation. A lot, a lot of people who are perfectly secular would say that there is such a thing as, um, you know, there could be a system of things that are all working at the same time simultaneously. It's not always, you know, the billiard ball example of, you know, flick the eight ball, it hits the, you know, Hits, well, actually, you wouldn't hit the eight ball, right? Hit the cue ball, hits the eight ball, knocks it in, right? It's, it's that there can be things that are sort of happening all at once together. And that's what the Trinitarian would ultimately hold, um, is that there wasn't a temporal procession. It was all at once.